We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. This year and this time marks 60 years since one of the most heroic and brave operations in the history of all civilizations. It happened in a small street in a small suburb of Buenos Aires, Argentina. The street's name was Garibaldi Street, and there was a little, simple, square house in the middle of almost nowhere with fields around it. And in that house lived a man, his wife, and his son. They had assumed the identity, or the man had, of Ricardo Clement, and he was working in the Mercedes-Benz factory in Argentina. But through a combination of errors, information, and pure luck, word had been received back to the state of Israel and its Mossad that this individual living on Garibaldi Street and this individual working at the Mercedes-Benz factory, this individual who had assumed the identity of Ricardo Clement was actually, and might be, Adolf Eichmann, the horrible Nazi who had blood on his hands for the deaths of literally millions of Jews. Well, this was a serious finding, and the greatest irony, he was found by a blind man who had such a keen sense of that voice that commanded such evil that it was so unforgettable to him that he connected the dots that brought the Mossad to Eichmann. After campusing and surveilling the house on Garibaldi Street and the routines of this man they believed to be Eichmann, a very daring operation of a car that was broken down not far from his house was set up. He got off of his bus, which was his normal routine, and then two people walked up to him, grabbed him, and immediately put him inside the car and took him to a safe house where they began to interrogate him. But before they even pulled the car away, they checked for three things. One was his SS tattoo, which almost all SS guards and higher ranks had on their inner bicep. The second was a birthmark that was on his paperwork from the SS, and the third was a scar from an appendectomy years before. And when they reached down into his trousers and found that scar, they said, it's him, it's him, it's him. They drove to the safe house there, interrogated him for five days, and within a matter of hours, he admitted to the fact that he wasn't Ricardo Clement. He was the notorious killer, Adolf Eichmann. And then an absolute brilliance from a combination of courage and chutzpah. The Israelis dressed him up as an El Al pilot. They drugged him and told everyone that he was drunk and hungover and got him on a plane that flew out of airspace of Argentina 
back into Israel. They brought him from the airport in Israel to a prison in Ramla. And in that prison, David Ben-Gurion, who I think was probably one of the smartest and wisest people I've ever read about in my life, called an emergency cabinet meeting. And in that emergency cabinet meeting, he declared to all of the cabinet, Adolf Eichmann has been found. Everyone perked up their ears. They said, where is he? He's in a prison in Ramla. We have captured him. He waited until he was in Israeli territory to announce it. And the people of the cabinet erupted in applause and satisfaction. And they wanted to give a reward to those who were responsible in the Mossad for finding him and capturing him and bringing him back to what be eventual justice. And Ben-Gurion slammed his hand down on the table in the midst of this elation and excitement, and he said, the reward for a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. The reward for a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself, meaning we're not having a ticker tape parade. We are not having confetti and celebration and pendants for people who have brought us the satisfaction of bringing this man to justice on behalf of so many others who couldn't be found or brought to justice. Now, Ben-Gurion wasn't a particularly observant man. Some might say he's not very religious, but boy, was he knowledgeable. Because that quote of the reward for a mitzvah, the mitzvah itself, comes from the Talmud. And if you go into Steboker in Israel, in Ben-Gurion's house, you will see the incredible amount of books that he was uh, known to have appreciated and well-read. And my colleague in Inglewood, uh, Rabbi Chaim Pupko, just pointed out a piece to me that he read in a book about Ben-Gurion, that when he went to France and asked for their support and recognition of the state of Israel when they declared a state in 1948, the leader of France said to him, who else will support you? And he said, eventually, all the countries of the world will support us, all the rational countries who aren't our enemies. He said, well, who's going to inhabit this country? There aren't enough Jews. And Ben-Gurion claimed in this book that Rabbi Pupko pointed out, he said, in 30 years, the Soviet empire will fall. And when it does, they'll need a place to go, all of these Jewish people. Well, almost to the year he predicted that, in, in fact, that would indeed happen. And so many of the inhabitants of Israel came from the FSU, from the former Soviet Union. So Ben-Gurion was indeed a brilliant person who had a brilliant read on tradition and also the reality of the world in which he lived and creating this new state of Israel. This moment of capturing Eichmann and then the trial that led to his execution, the only person executed for crimes that weren't even committed in Israel in the history of the 72-year state was a watershed moment for the state and for the way people responded to the Holocaust. You see, there was a division in Israel beforehand of Sephardim and Ashkenazim. The Sephardim were mainly from Spain and North Africa, and they were tough and rugged and workers, and they didn't understand how Ashkenazim went like lambs to the slaughter as they appeared. And the Ashkenazim, who later survived and came to Israel, they didn't talk about the Holocaust so much. But the trial of Eichmann, which was in 1961-62, for a 14-year-old country, this was a moment that allowed, that opened up the wounds, that bared the chest, that showed everyone 
the inscriptions on the arm and allowed people to start talking about the Holocaust so that the Ashkenazim and Sephardim could communicate and see suffering and pain and realities that they couldn't even fathom. Now I share all of this with you on this Shabbat as I've tried to frame my remarks about the reality of the world we're in for something that's very important. It was a hell of a lead up, a big foundation, so I apologize for being so long-winded. But after the capture of Eichmann, the Israelis, as one would imagine, got very confident, a little cocky. And they claimed and they went to Ben-Gurion and said, okay, we got Eichmann, let's go get the rest. Let's go get Mengele. Let's go get so many others who are still floating around Europe and South America and other places under pseudonyms and fake identities and let's catch them and let's bring them back to justice. We have the energy, we have the time, we just need the resources, Mr. Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, thought long and hard. He davened over that request and he said, no. We're not spending any more money of the country to go and capture these terrible people. Now that's not because Ben-Gurion wasn't sensitive to the plight of survivors. It's not because he didn't want some sense of revenge that could indeed be satisfying, even if it's this much. If it didn't bring your mother or father, your husband, your wife, your son or your daughter back, at least some justice was brought. But it was because of reality that Ben-Gurion articulated and he said, you know, we have a lot of enemies today that don't want us to be here in the state of Israel. Whether it's our neighbor in Jordan, our neighbor in Lebanon, our neighbor in Iran, our neighbor in Iraq, our neighbor in Saudi Arabia, our neighbor in Egypt, we are constantly fighting wars. And we have to decide as a nation, because we are a very young nation. At the time, they were 14 years young. We have to decide if we are gonna fight wars of our past or fight wars of our present whether we are going to look backward or whether we are going to look forward. It doesn't mean that what they had in front of them was any easier, even though it might be different. But what Ben-Gurion was trying to say was that the orientation and the posture that you took was critical to what tomorrow would look like in the evolution of the state of the Jewish people. If we continue to make the evolution of the state of the Jewish people the shadow of the Holocaust and only the shadow of the Holocaust, it would have a particular identity. But if we continue to make the future of the state of the Jewish people in Israel a blend of what was the shadow of the Holocaust and what was the exodus from Egypt and what was the kingdom of David and Saul and what is a modern homeland, and what is a land flowing with milk and honey, and what is a desert that blooms, and what is a pioneer in technology, what is a standard-setting place for humanistic treatment of others, for biotechnology, and for medical ethics. Then we will be a place that is rooted and grounded in our past, but forward-looking into our future. And that answer that Ben-Gurion gave wasn't flippant. It wasn't not thought of. It was calculated and it was precise. He was saying that, yes, we could spend our time and our resources chasing our past, or our time and our resources 
clearing the way for our future. Every day, when there's something yucky in my life, I spend a lot of time looking back. I remember when my dad died. I was riddled for years with so much guilt. What if I had done X, and what if I had said Y, and what if I behaved this way, and what if I had done this? That guilt was so heavy to carry around until time and looking inward and support allowed me to get rid of some of that guilt and to look forward and to see how I would create a life that was built on less regrets. Not no regrets, because that's impossible, but less regrets. There hasn't been a day in the last 10 weeks of this pandemic that I have not spent too much time looking backward. Boy, if we had only closed down the synagogue two days earlier, maybe one less person would have gotten sick. Boy, if our president would have done X, Y, and Z, if communication would have happened in A, B, and C fashion, if we would have had more PPE, if and how we could have and should we, looking backward. And the one thing I know is that there is no DeLorean time machine outside the doors here that will allow us to go back in time and to alter our future. It is a great fantasy, but it is not realistic. And all of that time looking backward doesn't allow us to do anything going forward. Yes, we can go backward to learn from mistakes. Yes, we can go backwards to absorb opportunities. But our posture has to be one that looks forward. We have 10 weeks of an unprecedented pandemic behind us. We have learned so much about our community, our people, who inhabits our land, how we will respond, what our value system is. We have totally all been defibrillated into a new rhythm of life. Some parts are fantastic and some parts are painful. But unless we set the coordinates of our posture to look forward, we can't grow, we can't change. We can't go to the place that we're gonna need to go individually and as a community and as a country and as a world. We have to spend time looking forward. Even knowing that going back and finding the mistakes and focusing on them can be so incredibly satisfying. We can learn from them, should always learn from them, but our posture has to be one to look forward. Could you imagine the gravity that Ben-Gurion must have had in telling the Mossad and his people, we're not spending money to look backward anymore, we're spending it to look forward. How those people must have felt in that time, how those people who needed to scratch that itch of satisfaction and revenge must have felt deflated. But I think if you saw those people today, if they were brought back in some magical seance and they saw our land, our homeland of Israel with eight and a half million Jews living proudly, opening up its schools carefully tomorrow, which had incredibly low numbers of COVID deaths because of their quick and nimble response, they would say that that posture of looking to tomorrow 
allowed them the ability and the nimbleness to be ready for the reality that shook them in this moment. It's a reminder for all of us, 60 years after that fateful day on Garibaldi Street, that shaped the land of Israel, that shaped our history of the Holocaust, and that shaped the way that we inherit our future, to remember those difficult choices of looking forward, learning from our past, but orienting towards tomorrow. That is where the sun rises from and where our hope lives. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. <laughs>